Our sermon text this morning comes from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and Hebrews. We're continuing a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes in a passage that has uh, some stiff warnings, uh, but we're coupling them with a reading from Hebrews, speaking of the grace of Christ. Uh, From Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for when a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And this from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we continue in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are new with us, uh, I think you'll be able to catch up uh, pretty quickly. You'll get the sense of dread and despair fairly quickly. Um, and the, the, the cover here continues to be uh, uh, Sunday after Sunday. Some of you may wonder, what on earth is this all about? Um, this dreary picture of a, uh, of a worker. They, they've not made any progress from last week. Um, and uh, it's just as dreary as it was last, last week. Um, uh, so the, the series is really about searching for meaning in life from one of the great wise people, perhaps the wisest person of, of all, except for Jesus, Solomon. And he's coming along and he's uh, aware of how meaningless life is. And he's trying to find meaning in life. And so uh, we find ourselves at, at another juncture in the book where he's uh, trying to hold forth a, a way to, to experience meaning. So in light of that, will you join me in prayer? Let's, let's take, a, take a moment and, and come before our God, who's the author of this book. Our Father, thank you for this time now. Um, we, we ask that you would manifest yourself with your authority, with your um, uh, inspired word. Uh, we need your word. It, your, our need is uh, sometimes uh, we are aware of it, but often we are not. And we, we pause that you could be our king uh, right now in, and help us. Uh, show us what you've done for us, that we could praise you more thoroughly and more clearly. 
and we lift up uh, the name of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I've used this illustration a couple times, but I think it sort of grabs what I'm after this morning. Uh, a friend of mine in college, his name was Tobin Sorensen, and he was one of these first crazy guys who climbed uh, sheer rock faces. Uh, 60 Minutes just had recently the, the current champion of this, uh, climbing uh, sheer rock walls with no ropes, no safety ropes. Uh, this would be uh, entered in uh, psychological books under insanity. Uh, and so Tobin was one of the first to ever do this, um, but he did hold a number of records uh, for climbing mountains like the, uh, the Eiger and the Matterhorn. This is back in the, the late 70s, and he took pictures for National Geographic, and he's a pretty, pretty amazing guy. I went to college with him. And um, he would do slide presentations uh, of, his, of these mountains, incredible European mountains, mostly. Uh, he'd led an expedition in uh, New Zealand and all kinds of places around the world. And um, So he was doing a presentation, uh, and then he'd have follow-up questions. And so someone asked him afterwards, uh, after he'd explained all these mountains, it was a young college girl saying, now when you say the Matterhorn, um, is that the one that's near the submarine ride? And she's trying to figure out where this might be, and uh, the 405 freeway there in, in Anaheim. And he looks at her, and he realizes that the, her image of the Matterhorn is this sort of this big paper mache thing that Disney made. And uh, if you've never been to Disneyland, there's a thing called the Matterhorn there, a Matterhorn ride. And uh, I think that pictures a little bit of, of, of what we're after here is that Solomon... Is, is trying to bring the, the, the grandeur and weight of God's glorious presence. It's like, like the Iger. Uh, like my friend Tobin would try to present to audiences the, the grandeur of God's creation in these, these amazing mountains. And uh, our, our response is often, well, we, we're only limited to our experience, and, um, and we don't really quite get it right when it comes to understanding um, the weight of the glory that, uh, that God uh, offers to us. And so Solomon here in, in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, uh, the subject is largely on worship, worship. So you can follow along in the, in the outline there if you'd like, but the, the idea is that worship is going uh, to offer something to us, it's going to bring something to us, and then ultimately it's going to deliver something uh, to us. And so firstly, worship is going to offer the weight um, that's, that's needed and that will make our lives deeply meaningful. It's going to bring the weight. Um, and then secondly, worship is going to bring the presence of God as transcendent judge. And then thirdly, worship is going to deliver to us its weight when God shows what is required. So let me unpack that. It's a little bit wordy, but let me unpack that. Uh, first of all, Solomon is really struggling. He is a, our tour guide through every possible experience in life. And he has come to this juncture saying, wait a minute. Uh, if, I could get some, if I could get my readers to, to wake up and to experience deep meaning in life, it would be at the temple. It would be at God's house. And, and, and it would be found in worship. And so he warns his readers his audience, number uh, verse 1, guard, look at verse 1, chapter 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. It's a great idea. And it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are 
that they are doing evil. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, uh, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word uh, before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So he's, he's dealing with impulsive people, impulsive worshipers. They've come to the, the courts of the temple uh, in, in his day, the ancient uh, Israel and their, and their worship. And he's come uh, and he's, he's presenting the idea that worshipers are not really aware of the presence of God. And he's saying, be careful and uh, be thoughtful. Uh, be careful in your steps. And so he's giving all this good advice. And then he uses a, a strange little illustration. Look at verse 3. For a dream comes with much biz- business. Oh, some translations actually say busyness. A dream is a random uh, uh, experience uh, when you're sleeping. And what Solomon is saying is just as uh, uh, you, you dream random images in your mind, you can't quite put the story together, that reflects on a busy life. That a busy life inevitably is trying to make sense of everything, and it shows up in your dreams. Solomon says, busy lives show up at the temple, and they don't really know how to process it. They're scattered. They have attention deficit disorder. This means that they cannot fully grasp the weight of God's glory there in the temple. And Solomon is warning. He's saying, uh, be careful. Wake up. Feel the weight of God's presence. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, which essentially is saying, I'm going to try and get this off my back. I'll offer a few things. I'll, I'll give something. Uh, I'll, I'll perform some offering. I'll bring a, bring a sheep or something and, and do that. But my heart is not in it. And I might even offer something that's blemished when God uh, demands that I offer perfection, something that's perfect. So really, much of this is, uh, is describing a fool, a fool in a place where you should be very wise. And they don't listen well. It's hard for them to be corrected. Um, you know, the Bible has a lot, book of Proverbs, a lot to say about fools. They start projects, but they don't complete them. Um, it's hard for them to listen. They're not very teachable. And Solomon's after this weight, a weightiness to bring a sobriety to his people. Maybe in worship you'll find the deepest meaning possible. And that's what he's, he's doing. He's exhorting his readers. Guard, be careful, draw near to listen. Um, and, and don't bring your crazy, impulsive way of living uh, into the temple and let the weight of God's presence do its work. Uh, but we must pause and say, well, um, for that to, to be done, God truly must be the one who delivers the goods. He must give us ears to hear. We are, by nature, impulsive and foolish. Uh, we are not sober before the presence of God, even though uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us that we are aware of God, we are aware of the worship that's due him, we turn away and suppress that knowledge. Worship does offer us uh, a weight of glory, but we turn away from it. We have another way of living with, with weightiness. 
hope you're tracking what, how I'm using this, this word, weightiness. There's something that is moving in you right now. It, it's capturing your imagination. It, it's it's, it's a, a worship structure within you. Something is going on inside you, and it's, it's a, it functions as a, uh, uh, a ballast in your life. It's what really makes life work for you. Uh, it's why you resist preaching. <laughs> Because you're, you're actively weighing, and you say, I don't know. That's good, but that's not great. There's this evaluation going on constantly, and you have something. There's some pleasure. There's something about, uh, there, there, perhaps there's, there's an escape. Uh, perhaps there's a mood that you're pursuing. Perhaps there's a kind of glory that you're pursuing. Uh, all of us are, by nature, worshipers. We are after a weightiness. We're after something substantive. We want a ballast in our life that makes life just work for us. And it's happening right now. Uh, you, you can't, for instance, I, I, I'm still stunned by the statistic that ESPN has had 30,000 episodes of SportsCenter in the last 30 years. Uh, you're after some weight there. Something more is going on than just uh, the Lakers won or something. There's much more going on behind that, that fascination and so worship is to bring about a, an adjustment in, in what we think is weighty. In fact, idolatry, trusting in some physical, uh, something physical or something that you imagine in your mind, idolatry, has the root behind that idea is weightlessness, that idols don't root you into anything. Ultimately, uh, like in our day and age, I'm always on the, the world of celebrity, uh, uh, and uh, is, is there a magazine called uh, Entertainment Weekly, right? Doesn't that tell you a great deal about the weightlessness of celebrity? Entertainment Weekly? Is anybody... Hello? Entertainment what? Weekly. That, that, that tells you something of the culture's dis, uh, disinterest in weighty things. See? But we're there as well. Now, and so that's just the first kind of opening salvo is that Solomon wants this weight uh, of God's transcendent glory to, to, to sink deeply in these foolish uh, hearts. And then look at, secondly then, worship brings us into the presence of God as transcendent judge. And this is, a, this is spoken mostly in, well, it's directly, but it's also indirectly in the text. Uh, be careful with your words. Why? Well, God's listening. Be careful with your vows. Why? Well, God's listening. Uh, don't pretend, don't pretend as you come into God's presence and make, you make a vow, you are on earth and God is in heaven. Uh, vows seem to be uh, central to this, this part of the Bible, this text here in Ecclesiastes 5. And um, it's, it's interesting that you, we would use words that do not have meaning even in a religious ceremony, perhaps a, 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 a sad to say, a, a marriage, marriage vows. A, a courtroom, a people can uh, uh, vow to tell the truth, but they actually don't, and they have a plan to avoid telling the truth. So that there's a, there's a uh, Solomon is saying the weight of God's glory comes to us first and foremost as judge. And this is to, to make us sober, to wake us up, to have us shift what we think is weighty to what's truly weighty. So, um, and he even says, look, uh, 
uh, if you're really a treacherous person, be careful. Don't vow things and then have no intention of, of keeping them. It would be better if you didn't vow. He actually says that. He says, it would be better if you don't vow than to vow and not keep your, your promise. And he's, essentially he's saying that God is listening. And um, it would be better that you would remain silent because God's judge, judgment is real. In verse 6, he says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And we think of Herod, who um, uh, was pleased by that dancing girl in the Gospels. And we we remember that he promised her anything that that she wished for. And she went to, uh, and her mother told her, give, give, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so we, we, we move impulsively into speech. We make vows that we don't really intend to, to, to come through with. Um, and so this impulsive, insincere worshipers are known by God, and, um, and this is not good. And Solomon is he's saying, look, you want to find meaning, be, be consistent, um, uh, be careful, be thoughtful. Uh, another old word, circumspect, uh, comes from the Greek word circus and means we get our, our words uh, circus or circle from it. Circumspect and the idea of glasses, spare, and I think that's a Latin word here. I'll have to ask my Latin professor here. Uh, and so circus, cir- circumspect, be aware of your circumstances, be seeing clearly where you are. And act appropriately. That's the key. Act appropriately. Well, these are great, great admonitions. And then he, he concludes this section in verse 7. He says, uh, where, when dreams increase, this is kind of a proverb, and I want to unpack this because it's a little bit foggy. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. You see that there in verse 7? Um, in the ancient world, when someone had a dream, it was like heaven was talking to them. And it was a point of revelation. And so you had all these spurious uh, cult-like groups and all kinds of religious movements start because someone had a dream. And Solomon's saying, look, this is like endless. It's endless. It's endless. People are always having dreams. There's always religious groups starting. And it keeps going and going and going as if something really is going to be accomplished. And he says, look, it's all vain. And the point here is his concluding remark in verse 7, fear God. Fear God. That's it. Fear God. And so this is the best that Solomon can offer. Uh, this is God's inspired word. And the, and the truth is, here it is. You want the weightiness of God's transcendent glory to, to shake you up and to move what you think is worth pursuing. It had to adjust, have an adjustment there. You must fear, fear God. Well, here's the deal. Can these exhortations... Can these admonitions, can they bring us the weight of God's transcendent glory? Can they do it? Uh, can you just hear these things, and can you be changed in your heart, and will you care? All that Solomon is saying is right and it's correct. But it has no power to rectify the situation of your heart. All that Solomon is saying is correct. It is right. But it cannot change your heart. It is law. It is really a beautiful, poetic law. 
It's just an exhortation to be this and do this. And we know that law points out how we fail. Now, our mistake at this point, uh, and I think of the contemporary church, our mistake at this point is to not really let the law do its work upon us and drive us to Christ. We, uh, we come up with other things. The, the church seems unconcerned with the core issues of God's transcendent glory. And we often are bemoaning the culture. I mean, it's an endless uh, uh, resource for complaints about life and how uh, our culture, our society doesn't uh, embrace transcendent values. And But I would suggest that we as the church have turned away from this bold, direct truth that Solomon is saying. We've turned away and we've turned to other things that would make us happy and we've moved the the story of scripture into the story of our lives. And God, now instead of being feared, is the one who comes along and makes my life work. And it's the preachers who are the trouble here. A survey of evangelical pastors uh, recently concluded that some 80% of the sermons that had been preached revolved around self, principles of living, keys to better living you see, it's, uh, it's too heavy uh, to just hear that admonition to fear God and let it do its work. And the work that it would do is an expression of honesty. I don't have it. I'm a fool at heart. I don't want the weight of God's transcendent glory bugging me. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy living without it, actually. And you see, the church picks up on this sort of feeling in the culture and in the, within the church, uh, and, we, and, and the preachers pick up on this, and, and the preachers now are adjusting the message to please the audience. Interesting that David Hume, who was a great influencer of Charles Darwin, wrote this in the 1600s. He wrote this, religion, this is not a believer, religion has lost all specificity and authority it is no more than a dim, meaningless, and unwelcome shadow on the face of reason. In his day, he could see there was no binding authority. There was no thunderclap from heaven. It, it was simply a, a, an attempt to, to sort of adjust the message and appease people. Law does its work. Law, the, the, mere, the sheer exhortation to, to fear God does not bring comfort and the law does not comfort us, but it can drive us to Christ. The law does not give us any confidence before a holy God. It just points out how we are glib, impulsive in speech, and rash in our thoughts. So, pastor, do you have any good news for us today? <laughs> is there anything good here? Yes, there is, because there is a greater Solomon who walked this earth. And Solomon, of course, is always pointing to the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the worshiper that we never will be. Jesus Christ understands the transcendent weight of his Father's glory in a greater way, in a greater capacity than any of us will. And God, in his mercy, sent his Son 
to be the worshiper that we could never be. And hear these words uh, from Hebrews chapter 10, from what this greater Solomon achieved in his life. Listen to these words, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, the law could never give that to you. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen to this good news, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Come on in. Jesus is over this house of God. And it's only through this worship that presents Jesus as this high priest does God then deliver the weight of his transcendent glory because it comes through his mercy. And we feel it and we sense it and we hear it and we believe it and we trust in it. And it provides this glorious response of gratitude in us. Oh God, you brought the one who did worship. You brought the one who wasn't rash with his words. You brought the one who wasn't impulsive in his speech. You brought the one who wasn't a fool, but was wise. And you brought him for me. And he's my high priest. And he's not ashamed to call me his son or his daughter. And I can enter with confidence into your presence. Whoa, that is awesome. That is great. That is good. Listen to David Wells from a book called God in the Wasteland. The fundamental problem in the evangelical church world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace too ordinary. His judgment too benign. His gospel too easy. And his Christ is too common. Solomon desired that fooly, foolish, foolhardy worshipers would, would see God's transcendent glory and be changed. But what we are given is a sight of Jesus who presents his body for us, who makes us acceptable before a holy God. We enter the holy place not by conformity to moral instructions. We enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus Christ. That holy place, that holy of holies in the temple was the place where only the high priest went once a year to, to, to present blood. That holy of holies was separated from sinners by a great veil, a great curtain. And in this passage here in Hebrews, we're told that that curtain is now open to us through his flesh. It's the body of Jesus that ultimately is the way to the Father. The sacrifice of fools mentioned in Ecclesiastes 5.1 is not taking seriously what what God says about worship, about his presence. Remember how Moses was told in, in Exodus 19, make sure, he was told by God, make sure the people don't touch the mountain, for it is holy, lest they die. M most of the Old Testament is warning sinners that you cannot come into the presence of God on your own merits. 
don't stand before a holy God in the condition of a, of, as one who is part of Adam's apostate race. You will not survive. The presence of God is not a good thing. It's a threat because he is holy and you come before him as a sinner saying that you are acceptable. We all have offered blemished sheep with our lives, convinced that a little prayer here, a little something in the offering, a little nod God's way is sufficient. And we find our lives weightless. We find our lives not sunk deep in deep reality. God comes and sends his son for people like us. Why does, getting back to the David Wells quote, why does God rest so inconsequentially upon the church? I think it has a lot to do with thinking little of his judgment and little of his son. It's interesting that in this passage there's a lot of talk about vows. But be careful. Be careful. Don't be foolish with your vow making, right? A lot of emphasis on that. It's interesting that the one who was most careful with his words, the one who always and only spoke truth, he was accused of making a vow, making a rash vow that he couldn't deliver on. And when he was being crucified, they said this of Jesus in Matthew 27, 39. Listen to these words. They wagged their heads at Jesus. And here's what they accuse him of. You would destroy this temple in three days. You made a vow. And then build it again. And they say to him, save yourself. Do what's obvious. Use your power. If you have real power to rebuild the temple, well, show us something now. You are a rash, impulsive vow maker before a holy God, and you are getting what you deserve. You're a man of crazy dreams. You are a fool on a hill. And of course, Jesus does fulfill that vow. He does uh, say, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. He is true to his word before a holy God. And he knows that his life will be received as an acceptable offering on behalf of sinners. And he rises from the dead in order that you might know that your trust is going to bring you all the way into glory. And you have no fear of God as your judge. Jesus had in mind for you the Father's transcendent glory, and he was ex willing to experience being made a fool on that hill for you. He wanted you to come boldly into his Father's presence, unashamed, without fear, as a son and daughter, and he thought of you. And he wanted you to, to know the weight of glory that will be the ballast for your life. And how do we experience and know this weight of glory? We know it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as God is in our midst bringing to us 
the truth that we could not present ourselves in worship, but we can come, we can come through the name of Jesus, who is our great priest. God has made you truly wise because he has given you the blood of his son that sprinkles you clean from an evil conscience. We, the ones who would never listen to God, were given the gift of listening, and we were told to listen to the Son as he tells us about salvation. We were impulsive, but he was deliberate. We were flighty, but he was resolved. Jesus always listened to his Father in order that you might be given ears to hear. He was treated as as if he had never heard the Father. But that was done in order to give you the gift of hearing, to give you the gift of the glorious gospel that will allow you to rest and be safe in God's presence. That's great. May the glorious weight of the triune God and his presence abide with you this week. May the weight of glory that Jesus has brought to us through his sacrifice, may that weight carry you this week, shape your character, move in you and function as a great center for your life and a ballast for your life that you might know his abiding presence with you through the thick and thin of life. Solomon says, fear God, revere God. And through Jesus, our high priest, we say, how can I not? How can I not revere this God? How can I not love him and worship him and adore him? God is moving you from weightlessness to weightiness. And he's doing it through worship, his word in our midst, his son convincing us to trust him. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of great compassion and mercy. Thank you for the gospel that turns us away from our moral keeping of your law. Father, thank you for your goodness to us that we could know this great priest, unashamed, brought in your very presence. Make us enjoy the weight of your glory. In Christ's name, amen.